taken one of the spiritual gifts tests. There should be some out there in the foyer. Grab one of those. And then now that maybe you have an idea of what your spiritual gift is, look for a way to use that spiritual gift to serve other people. And if you're not sure of a, an area where you can get involved, come talk to pastor or myself. or We'll, we'll get you involved somewhere. But we want to use those gifts to help other people. That's why God gave them to us. And tonight we're going to look at a small book of the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Malachi. Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament. So here's what's going to happen. This book is going to be there, and then for 400 years there's going to be silence. For 400 years the people will not hear from God in that same way until Jesus Christ is born. So this is an important book when we look at it. And I think there's some great truths here for us. And how, when I think of this book, I'm, I'm thinking of a garden. I don't know how many of you are gardeners or into it. Again, I remember as a teenager, we had a big garden out there. My grandpa, he, he had a huge garden. And there were certain plants that we'd sort of cheat on, you know what I'm saying? Like we'd go and buy the tomato plants at Home Depot after they've already been planted and everything like that. Like we would do that. But there were certain ones. I remember the corn. We would... I, I love like that fresh corn after you get that. And growing up in Indiana, you could just drive down the road and there would be stands where people would be selling it all over the place. And, and you would plant that seed and then you'd watch. And then you'd hopefully start to see it to come up and it would grow. And then the end, you're hoping to go there and take that ear of corn off of that corn stalk. That, that was the goal. But you see, it was pretty easy to plant it. I always got nervous planting it because my grandpa, like I said, he was a very, he was a farmer, very big on planting things. And I always tried to make the rows straight, but it was never like super straight. Like I did all the different things, but it would be messed up a little bit and grandpa would come and he'd come back there and sort of inspect it. And I'd want to have it somewhat straight when he would come back there. But you know, in between the time you plant and the time you take the harvest, there's a lot of work that goes in. You've got to go out. You've got to water it. The worst thing is weeding it. That was my least favorite thing to do. Especially like if you were gone for a week or two and then you had to go back out there and do that. I mean, it's like, where did all of this come from? I, I hated doing that part. But there was a lot of work that went in in between the initial planting and the harvest. What the book of Malachi is really going to look at is... In between the time that we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and the time that we go to heaven someday, there's a lot of work that goes on. There's a lot of work that has to go on in our hearts. There's a lot of, you could maybe say, weeding that needs to go on. Maybe watering that needs to go on. There's a lot of growing that needs to happen in each and every one of our lives. And that's what this book is really going to deal with. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And when we first get into it, we're going to look at the background of this book. And if you're there at Malachi, we're going to look at Malachi 1, verse number 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The author of this book is Malachi. The author is Malachi. Now, Malachi means my messenger. So who is Malachi? Here's what we know about him. His name. That is all we know. In fact, some people look at this and say, well, it says my messenger, so maybe it wasn't actually a guy by the name of Malachi. But every other Old Testament prophet that we see, we, the book is written by the person whose 
name is on the book. So we're going to, again, take this literally and assume that there was a man by the name of Malachi. Even though there's nowhere else in the Old Testament do we see this name at all. There's no background material given on him. We don't know his family history, where he lived, anything about his personal life at all. All we know is that he was a messenger. I think that's fitting. You know, in our lives, it's not about us. We're just messengers. We're just here to give the message that God loves people. To give the message that they can know for sure they're on their way to heaven. John the Baptist said it this way in John chapter 3, verse number 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about me. Isn't it easy to make our life about us? It's easy to want people to know who we are. But that should never be our goal. We're looking forward to celebrating 60 years as a church uh, in, coming up in September. But see, our goal as a church is not so that anybody really, really thinks a lot about Mountain Avenue Baptist Church. Here's what we want them to think about. The God that we serve here at Mountain Avenue Baptist Church. Everything we do here at the church, we want to point people to him. So that people don't come here. We, we want the facilities to look nice. And I'm so thankful for all of those people that are involved in it. I know there will be a group here uh, that will be cleaning up the auditorium this week, on Friday. I'm thankful for them. There's many that work in the parking lot, that go through all the different... We want the facilities to look nice. But the reason is not so that people come on this property and are amazed with our facilities. We just want that to be a tool to help them to come to know Jesus Christ. Everything we do is about the message, not about the messenger. Now, Jewish tradition does say about Malachi that he was a member of the great synagogue. He was involved in collecting and preserving scripture. Now, the historical setting of this book, when was this book written? There's no exact time that is given for this book. But when we look at the different events that happened during this, we can get some of it. And here's what's going on so far. Israel is the northern kingdom. Remember, Saul, you had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon. They had a united kingdom. But after Solomon, his son Rehoboam becomes king. And remember, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they're going to split the kingdom. Jeroboam's going to take the northern kingdom, which is in the Bible you're going to see referred to as Israel during that time. And you're going to see Rehoboam with the southern kingdom, which you're going to see referred to as Judah. So this is what's going on. The, it's been divided in the northern kingdom. They are not going to have one good king. The entire time, they're going to do their own thing. Until God sends a group of people, the Assyrians, who are going to come in and going to capture the northern kingdom, disperse the people, and that's the end of the northern kingdom. Later on, maybe about a hundred years later, we're going to see a group of people come in, the Babylonians, who are going to come to the southern kingdom of Judah, and they are going to capture Judah. It's during this time that one of maybe the more famous people in the Bible we see, remember Daniel? He was taken by the Babylonians back to Babylon. And that's where we see the events that are going to happen in the book of Daniel. They're in Babylon after he's been taken captive there. They're there for a period of time, and the Babylonian Empire is going to fall. The Medo-Persian Empire is going to take over. We find that event recorded in Daniel chapter number 5. Remember in Daniel chapter number 5, there's a great feast that's going on. Belshazzar is sitting there, and he's presiding over this feast. And they see a, a hand that's writing on the wall. 
and nobody knows what it says, and finally somebody's there and says, well, I, I, I do remember this one guy. They bring Daniel out. Daniel tells them that what it's saying there is tonight they're going to lose the kingdom. And I, I always find this very interesting in the Bible. You know what Belshazzar says? Okay, I'm going to make you thir third in command of all the kingdom. You wonder when Daniel's there and they're telling him this, he's like, I just told you guys that within less than 24 hours, this whole kingdom's gone. Like, this isn't that great of an honor right now. But that's, that's what they do. They, they, they make him third in command. That night, the Medo-Persian Empire comes through. They conquer Babylon. And shortly after that, the king, by the name of Cyrus, is going to issue a decree. I want to read you a verse in Isaiah 44, verse 28. It says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasures, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the foundation that thou or shalt, thy foundation shall be laid. Here's what's amazing about that verse. That's written 200 years before that happens. You get that 200 years before Cyrus issues the decree, God's word said there would be a man by the name of Cyrus who would issue a decree for the people to go back and to rebuild the temple and the foundation of it. That's what happens. Ezra chapter 1, verse number 1 says this. Now, in the final year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him in a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with it. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. I just find that amazing. That 200 years before the events in Ezra happens, before, again, this is before Cyrus is ever born, God's word said there's coming a man by the name of Cyrus, who will send the people back. It's amazing when we think about God. and When God says something, it will happen. And it happened exactly the way he said. Cyrus sent the people back. And the people that came back with Cyrus is one of the great names of the Bible, Zerubbabel. I, I think that's a fun name right there. Um, I, I, never, I didn't name any of my children Zerubbabel, but I think it would have been a fair name to, uh, to have. It just sounds like a fun name, but Zerubbabel is the guy that comes back. Now, Zerubbabel, when you think, we're going to talk about three different people, and I just want to give you sort of a little bit of an idea of what they did. When Zerubbabel comes back, his job, he's going to help the people rebuild the temple. That's what he's going to do. He's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to work with the people to rebuild the temple. Now, there's going to come a time where they're going to start the work, then they're going to stop the work, and when they stop the work, another man comes back, a man by the name of Ezra. When Ezra gets back there, he's going to challenge the people that they need to get back to work. They sort of got distracted. They started working on their own house. They faced some opposition. And he's going to encourage people. So now Zerubbabel and Ezra are going to get the people to finish building the temple. So you've got Zerubbabel who's helping the people rebuild the temple. You've got Ezra who's really rebuilding the people. He's challenging them in the ways of the Lord. And then comes a third man, a man by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah leads a group back. Remember what Nehemiah does? He comes back and he's going to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Which again, in our modern setting, we don't think that much about. Walls don't matter to us. We don't go to cities with walls. But again, in ancient times, that was a very big thing to have. 
Nehemiah becomes governor. He's in charge of Jerusalem. But there comes a time when he goes back to Shushan, where the palace is at, and this is where most Bible scholars believe the time that the events of Malachi are going to happen. So Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. They would have known each other. And the reason they believe that is because the sins that are going to be mentioned in the book of Malachi are the same sins when Nehemiah comes back, he's going to confront the people about. And so all of this is going on at this time. Malachi is the message of the need for revival. See, the people had come back, but they become complacent. John Yates, who is uh, the, the founder and he teaches Faith Bible Institute, said this about this, the prophet challenges a complacent population sin with the message that while they may be satisfied with their relationship with God, God is not. I'm challenged by that statement. They were satisfied with their relationship with God, but God was not. This is why I believe this book is so important, because it's very easy for us to be satisfied with our relationship with God, no matter where we're at in that relationship. It's very easy for us to be complacent in our relationship with God. And I've known God for this many years. I'm trying to do my best that we, we don't really put an importance on it. That's why a church like this, we have revival meetings. I'm looking forward to October. We're going to have a revival meetings here at the church. We'll have Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, where we're going to have evangelists that have been with us before. Paul Schwenke is going to be here, and he's going, to, he's going to be preaching from God's Word. Why is he here? Why is he doing that? To sort of stir up in us. To, to help us not become complacent. Because it's so easy to become complacent. And that's what this book is written. That's what this book is about. So what we're going to look at these next couple of weeks is steps to having a fresh faith. You see, I want my faith to grow. I want it to be fresh. I don't want my faith to just sort of dry up. I want it to be growing. We went on vacation, and we were gone for a couple of weeks, and we came back, and I, I've got these plants, that, uh, these bushes that I've got to water. I hate watering things, and here's why. Because everything, I think since we've been married, that I have had the responsibility of watering, it's going to die. Like, it's just a matter of time. Now, these ones, I had high hopes. They'd already lived like a year. And I'm like, you know, they're established. They've got a shot here. And we got back after being on vacation. You know what? They were like, they were almost gone. So I thought, I'm going to bring them back to life. Like that, that I'm going to try my best. I'm, I'm going to, you know, basically we're performing CPR at this point. But I, I can do that. I can give them the water. I can bring them back to life. And I, I did that for a while. At this point, I've given up hope. The CPR has stopped. They're on their own. They're either going to make it or they're not. And right now, it does not look very good for their overall health. Isn't that amazing? Only two weeks, and they're pretty much gone. They're, they're not going to last. It was just two weeks. That's what happens in our Christian life. When we don't put a priority, when we don't focus on our relationship with God, it doesn't take long for it not to be where it needs to be. And so as we look at this, and we're going to look at these steps to having a fresh faith, the first step that I want to look at today is to embrace the love of God. Embrace the love of God. You're in Malachi. We'll read verse number one one more time. Malachi 1, verse 1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
He has a burden to share with the people. You know what? We also see Nahum and Habakkuk using that same terminology. That the message they had to give was a burden to them. Why was it a burden to them? It's difficult when you're challenging people in the way that they are. You're telling people that maybe the, the, way, the things that they're doing, they're not right. That's a burden. And so this is a burden that he has, but he has to share it with them. You see, our job is not to make everything easy, but to make everything right. That's, that's what we want to do. With our children, we don't want to just make everything easy for them. We want to help make things right. And the first sin that's going to be called out, we see in, in verse number two, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? The first sin that's called out is also the first sin that's mentioned in Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2, the churches of Asia Minor are having these letters written to them, and the church in Ephesus was the first one mentioned. And in Revelation 2 verse 4, it says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The love had grown cold. Now, they would say they still loved God. But here, we're going to see sort of a, a shocking statement from the children of Israel. Look at what it says there. Verse number two again. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Can you imagine that? You say you love me, God. But I don't see the proof of it. How do I really know that you love me. That's what's going on right here. So what we're going to look in these next few verses is the evidence of God's love. The evidence of God's love. The first evidence that we have of God's love is the fact that he says it. His word. I have loved you. I have loved you. But he doesn't say the love stopped. It doesn't say, you know, I, I did love you before. I've loved you. Do you realize how many times in Scripture God says, I've loved you? Most famous verse in all the Bible, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5a says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.35 starts out by saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 15.13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. 1 John 4.19, We love him because he first loved us. 
When you look at the idea of the love of God, we could have listed many, many more verses in Scripture that talk about the fact that God loved us. Why do you think it's something that God's had to say over and over again? Because he knew it's something we needed to know. He knew it's something that at times we might struggle with. That's what you, each one of us, maybe with our children, when you had children at the house there, there were certain things you had to tell them over and over again. Like, like I don't know if you have a rule at your house that they're supposed to take their shoes off when they go inside. I don't know how many of you maybe had that rule when your kids were there. Did you ever have to repeat that rule to your children? Did you ever have to repeat it to your spouse? You know, like, like that, that's the one I get in trouble with. I, I walk in and I, I don't, I've, I've left my shoes on, right? I, I'm supposed to take them off. You repeat something because people need to hear it. They may be forgotten. God has said over and over and over again that he loves you. In fact, the Bible itself is really just God's love letter to you. Because all throughout Scripture, it goes over and gives examples, his love for people, and it gives how he's displayed his love for you. What is an evidence of God's love? Here's a big evidence. God said it. God said it. And the truth of the matter is, if that's where it stopped, we should just take it at face value. Because when God says something, it's true. It's not like when we say something and we mean it. And we, Again, we looked at it in the very beginning. God said there would come a man by the name of Cyrus who would allow the children of Israel to go back to rebuild the temple. And 200 years later, you know exactly what happened? There was a man by the name of Cyrus who allowed the children of Israel to go back and rebuild the temple. The prophecies we see in Scripture, what happened? They came true. So when God says something, we can believe it. God has said that he loves you. But not, not only do we have his word as evidence, we have his grace as evidence, his grace. Look at the second part of, of verse number two. We'll read the whole verse. Verse two, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. We come to an interesting couple verses in Scripture here. You know, remember who Jacob and Esau were? They're twins. Remember that, that Isaac is going to have two children? And we're going to see Isaac and Rebekah, and Rebekah is going to have twins. And remember at the very beginning, there's a little bit of a problem that goes on with the twins? Remember, Esau comes out first, and there's, there, there, there's a problem of she put something on him, and, and there's just confusion, and, and all throughout these two, these two boys' lives, there's, there's a little bit of a problem. Remember, Esau comes back in, they're, they're completely different. I don't know if any of you have twins in your family, or if you have a twin, or anything like that. Completely different. Remember, Esau's the, the rugged outdoorsman. Jacob's the guy that wants to stay back at home. They've got different interests. They've got different hobbies. Esau comes back one day, and he's starving. And he's, he's willing to sell his birthright for food. Now, now before we come, become too judgmental, probably in all of our lives, there's been times where we're like, I will do whatever it takes to get food, right? You know, like, whatever it takes. That's basically where he's at. Okay, I'll, I'll get rid of it. You take it. I just need the food. Remember, he becomes so dramatic. What does it matter to me? Because if I don't eat right now, I'm going to die anyways. And he takes the food from him. But then just to make sure, 
Remember, Isaac believes he's about to die. And he tells Esau, I have one last thing I want you to do for me before I die. Can you go, to the, go out there and, and get this animal for me and fix it the way that you do and come on in and, and that way I can eat it and I can die. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you when you do that. But remember what happens? Rebecca hears it. She comes up with a plan. Hey, Isaac, or calls Jacob over. Jacob, here's the plan. You, you go. You get this lamb out there. I, I think I know a way to fix it. You know, your dad's a little bit older. The taste buds maybe aren't working as well. I think we can trick him into this. We, we, we've got it. And, and Jacob, remember his concern? Wait a minute. He's going to know. Remember, Esau, my brother, he's a hairy guy. And, and this, is, to me, is one of the humorous parts of the Bible. Remember the plan? We'll take some animal skin and put it on your arms so that he'll think that you're eating. Like, how hairy of a guy do you have to be? To have to have like animal skins on your arm, like I mean that, I've always been fascinated by that. But but that's what he has to do, and he goes in there, and remember Isaac's like, well, you sound like Jacob, but but come here, let me, yeah, you must be okay. I'm 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 going to give you the blessing, and he gives him the blessing, and shortly after, who comes home? There's Esau, and Esau, understandably, is a little upset at this point. Jacob's going to have to leave. He's fleeing for his life. All of this goes on. This is what they're talking about right here when they come to Esau and Jacob. Jacob is going to go on, and we're going to know the descendants of Jacob by the name of Israel. In fact, Jacob's name will later be changed to Israel by God himself. Esau's descendants, they will become known as the Edomites. They will live in a country of Edom there. But there's going to be this back and forth. And when we come to this verse, and actually I'm going to to read you one more verse in Romans 9, verse number 13. It says this, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So here's where sometimes the confusion comes in. Does God arbitrarily hate people? Does God have somebody who just says, No, okay, I'm going to like this person, I'm not going to like this person. I don't believe so. All the verses we just read about how God loves everybody, I don't think you can throw all of those out for a couple of verses that we see right here. So how do we explain this with that? I believe we can go to the words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus has a group of people there, and he's talking to them. And remember what he tells them? Hey, if, if, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters, then, then you can't follow me. Now let me ask you, do you think that's what Jesus really meant? I've got to hate my, my spouse, my children. No, no, I, I believe we're commanded to love them. What was he saying there? It's a comparison. With how much I love God, my love for anybody else will not be nearly as great. So here's what he's saying. He's saying he has loved the children of Israel. They have been known as God's chosen people. He has done so much for them. And what he has done is he has shown grace to Jacob and his descendants. How do we know God loves you? How many times has God shown grace to you? Our salvation is all by grace, isn't it? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The incredible truth is the grace that God showed us is that God died for sinners. But let's make that a little more personal. God died for you. 
He died for you. That's grace for you. Isaiah 49, verse 16 says this, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Do you understand when Jesus was on that cross, he knew who you were. He was giving his life for you. Now, did we deserve that? I didn't. Not at all. In fact, a man came up to a pastor one day and was talking about this passage here in Malachi chapter 1, verse number 3. And he said to his pastor, hey, I have a problem with this. When God says, Esau, have I hated? How could God say this? And this is what his pastor responded with. He said, I have a greater problem with Malachi 1, verse number 2, where it says, where God says, Jacob, have I loved? See, the, the problem, I think the greatest problem we could have is John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Why would God love me? Like, like why? I know me. He knows me. He knows that in me dwells no good thing. But he still loves me. He still has shown grace to me. At the moment of salvation and through continuing on, he continues to show grace. We see that his word says that he loves us. His grace shows us that he loves us. And then we're going to look at the blessings that he gives. Verse number four here says, Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Edom, remember, are the descendants of Esau. They were destroyed. And they would never rebuild. The destruction of Edom we see in the small book of the Bible by the name of Obadiah. That refers to the destruction that happens to Edom. Israel, though, would be rebuilt. That's a blessing to the people of Israel. Did they deserve it more to the people of Edom? I don't think so. But God had decided to give them this blessing. What happens when we begin to doubt God's love is we don't look at the blessings that God has given us, we look at the problems that we have. It's so easy to focus on problems. That, that's sort of how our minds are, are wired, I think. Right, if, if you're in your car and one part of the car is making a sound, you know what you're focusing on, that part of the car. That, that's what you're focusing on. I was talking to Pastor today, and we were talking about different things, about cars, and how um, for some people, when a car, you hear a problem in a car, some of you are mechanically inclined, you know how to work on cars, you hear the sound, and you're like, okay, this is what I need to do to fix it. You know what happens when I hear a sound in my car? I'm praying that the next time I turn the car on, the sound is not there. Like, that's, that's my only hope. But some people, they know what the sound is. They know how to fix it. And if there's that little sound, we begin to focus on that. And what happens in our lives is when a problem comes, we begin to focus on the problem, and we take our eyes off of God, and we begin to look at ourselves and say, well, can God really love me if this is happening? Think about all the blessings that God has given you. Israel is having a problem when they come back. The temple is rebuilt. But when you read the temple being rebuilt, you know what we see? Some of the older men are over to the side. You know what the Bible says they're doing? They're like crying. Because the temple that was rebuilt was nowhere near as grand as Solomon's temple. And so they looked at, look at what we've lost. Instead of focusing on the fact for 70 years we have been 
in Babylon in bondage. Now we're back. Now we have a temple. They didn't focus on that. They focused on what they lost. We are sort of built to do the same way, to focus on what we lost. And then in verse number five, I wanted to look at one last thing, his commission, his commission. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Israel, Jerusalem is being rebuilt. And why is it being rebuilt? So that God would be magnified. So that people would see this city and they would wonder, how does it come back to be? And they would know that the God that, is, that the people of Israel serve is the true God. We find that in the book of Daniel, don't we find that? Remember what happens in the book of Daniel when Daniel's thrown in the lion's den? He brings him out and he says, was your God able to deliver you? And when he finds out that Daniel's God was able to deliver him, he issues a decree about who Daniel's God is. We find that with Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, when people see what God does in our lives, they look and they see, what a great God that is. That's what our lives need to be. David and Solomon, we see different times. Solomon, remember the Queen of Sheba comes to the palace there and is shown all around and tests Solomon on his knowledge. And what does she take away from that? How great his God is. See, our commission as Christians is because of the love of God, we show that to everybody else. We let people know that God loves them. How do we let people know that God loves them? By picking up invitations to church and inviting somebody to church. Just as Kim mentioned, she did tonight. Looking at every one of those as an opportunity to give somebody an invitation. Again, we can look at that and say, hey, I passed out tons of invitations. And nobody has come. But what about that one person that might? Who knows how God will use that? It's showing love to people. One of the greatest ways I show people that God loves me is by loving them. How do I love them? By serving them, by helping them, by being an encouragement to them. Do you show that love to your neighbor, to your friend, to that person at work, Maybe even that person at work that bothers you. Do you show the love of God to them? That is what we are supposed to do. And why? Because when they see that love of God, they will know that there's something different. And they'll want to see what it is. The very first issue that we have to look at in our lives, if we are going to have revival, if we're going to be right with God, is we must realize that God loves us. And not just, uh, I can give you verses about how God loves us. Not just we can get up on a Sunday morning and sing songs about how God loves us. It's knowing that he loves me. Because God's love for you is not based on your circumstances. It's never going to change. I don't know if you're going through a difficult time right now, but can I tell you that his love for you has not changed? when everything in your life is going right or when everything in your life seems to be going wrong, God's love for you has never changed. It stays the same. He loves you. Charles Spurgeon had this quote, and I want to sort of end with this. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have loved you. I who made the heavens and the earth have loved you. 
I have loved you from before the foundation of the world. I have not merely pitied you as a man might a starving dog, but I have loved you with all my heart. I have loved many others beside you, but I still have as much love for you as if there were nobody else for me to love in the world. I love that last part. I still have as much love for you as if there was nobody else that I love. Isn't that amazing? That's the love God has for you. And if we're going to see revival, if our relationship with God is going to be fresh, we must realize that God loves you. Because again, let's read verse number two together again. God says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Let's not doubt the love of God. It's not changed. It won't change. He loves you. And because of his love for me, it should change how I live my life today. Because I don't serve God to earn his love. I already have his love. I serve God out of love. Because I love him, because he loves me, I just want to serve him and give my life to him. We must understand the fact that God loves you. Dear God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your word. and I thank you for just this, this little book, the book of Malachi. I pray as we dive into it in these next couple of weeks, God, would you help us to understand the importance of keeping our relationship with you right? I, help, I, I pray you'd help us to understand that, that our relationship with you is, is so important. It's not something we need to put to the side. It's something we need to make a priority in our life. And tonight, God, as we think of the fact of how much you love us, it's unbelievable. You love us even though you know our faults, our failures. You know how many times we've not done what we're supposed to do. But somehow you, you still love us. And God, I pray we would never forget that. And that we would live our lives knowing that you love us. God, when the doubts come in and the, we know that the deceiver will try to, try to make us doubt your love, I pray that you would help us to remember your word. How many times you've said you loved us. The grace that you've shown to us. The blessings that you've given to each one of us. God, I pray that we would really look at our relationship with you this week and deepen it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A few announcements before we leave. Just wanted to remind you, uh, this Sunday, right after the morning service, all of, the, all of you over the age of 55, you're invited. They're going to have a meal in the back. And there is a sign-up sheet out in the foyer. Please do sign up if you're planning on going to that. And then Sunday evening, we're going to have a uh, couples activity that will be in the back field there. And just a, a good time with the families of the church getting together. So a lot of different opportunities to get together and to spend time with the church family. And of course, be in prayer for Sunday as we look forward to being in God's house. 9.30, our growth groups will meet. And then 10.30, the morning worship service. And be in prayer for that. And we look forward to being here. And here's some, let's each one of us. I was sort of challenged tonight just by Kim sharing that testimony. Well, what if each one of us just invited somebody to church this Sunday? Just took a track with us. In between now and Sunday, we just tried to give that out to somebody we meet. Maybe at the store, maybe at the drive-thru. But let's, just these next few days, 
pray and go out and let's each one of us invite somebody to be in church with us on Sunday. All right? And we'll look forward to seeing you guys there. Have a great rest of your evening.